This is the Scholar Circle, scholarcircle.org. I'm Maria Armudian. The vaccinations of COVID-19 have once again raised the issue of human rights. What is the relationship between human rights and global health in the distribution of COVID vaccines? Doug Becker explores. I'm Doug Becker. In the midst of the global pandemic, the development of vaccines offer hope for global health action. But the task of distributing the vaccine has multiple human rights concerns, including issues of vaccine nationalism and equitable distribution to marginalized communities. We examine the human rights considerations of vaccine distribution and communities with vulnerabilities with Joanne Lin, who is the National Director of Amnesty International USA's Advocacy and Government Affairs Departments, and Heather Whipfley, Associate Professor of Clinical Preventative Medicine and International Relations at the University of Southern California. Joanne Lynn, let's start with you. What are some of the human rights concerns that we should be considering as vaccines get distributed to try to address the COVID crisis? Well, good afternoon, Doug. It's lovely to be with you and thank you for inviting me today. The COVID-19 scourge has claimed more than 2 million lives and has triggered a global economic calamity and desperate for relief from the worst pandemic in a century, countries have struck deals to secure vaccine access. For Amnesty and International, we are urging the Biden administration to apply an international human rights framework, framework to vaccine distribution, one that prioritizes vaccines for those highest at risk, regardless of what country they live in and how much money they have. If the pandemic has taught us anything, it's that we are only as safe as those most at risk, and we won't be completely safe until those individuals at highest risk are vaccinated. And those include health workers, essential workers, older, older adults, those with underlying health conditions, those unable to physically distance, including people in nursing homes, prisons, and detention facilities. Amnesty International is particularly concerned about the situation facing refugees, migrants, displaced peoples, as well as people in prisons and immigration detention facilities. By definition, these people live in overcrowded conditions and they do not have control over their living situation. In many circumstances, they do not have access to basic water, clean hygiene, and not, are not able to socially distance according to public health protocols. Moreover, they live at the fringes of society, in some cases not even recognized by the governments or the countries where they happen to live. And so Amnesty International is closely watching national vaccination programs and urging governments around the world to ensure that refugees, displaced people, migrants, as well as prisoners and detainees are included, and not only included, but prioritized in vaccine distribution. And Heather Whipley, what do you see as some of the real human rights concerns that we face in vaccine distribution? Well, according to international human rights laws and norms, governments have the responsibility to provide all individuals safe, available, accessible, and affordable access to healthcare that's required for them to live full, healthy lives. And this includes um, concepts of non-discrimination. So regardless of whether or not an individual can pay, they should have access to those essential services 
that are required for, for their health. And certainly in the context of our COVID pandemic, access to um, safe, available and accessible vaccines is an essential right that all individuals have. And in the context of our, our current pandemic, the real challenge here lies in ensuring, um, as Joanne mentioned, those of our most vulnerable communities have access. And so in addition to these migrant and refugee communities, making sure that those lowest income communities on our planet, um, including those in the least income countries around the world have access um, to the vaccine in a timely fashion. And this is not only essential for their own health, but for all of our healths as we're also interconnected. Just in the last 24 hours, we've been receiving news of a new um, strain of, of the virus coming out of South Africa that appears to be more lethal. And it is in that context that we understand that all of, that we need to get a control over the virus in all areas of the planet in order to prevent the further mutation and spread of an even more deadly virus. So Joanne Lynn, you'd stated a set of, of principles, a very you know, powerful set of principles. Are there specific areas that are of a particular concern you know, at this point, areas that you think, I know vaccine distribution has just begun relatively recently, but areas, you know, Heather Whipley mentioned South Africa as, as this new strain. I don't know if that's one of those, or are there some areas that we should particularly pay close attention to that seem to be, be problematic? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, this, the start of the global vaccination campaign is it, we're only a month into it in the United States and 48 higher income countries. And what we've seen over the past month is very unequal access to vaccines and varying degrees of efficiency in getting the shots into people's arms. While the U.S. is nearing one million shots weekly, most countries have yet to give their first shots. And what, what has unfolded is this mad scrum for vaccines, where not surprisingly, the richest countries in the world um, are doing fairly well. They've accumulated extensive supply deals. Um, and in some cases, some countries are hoarding vaccines, um, buying enough immunizations to immunize their population several times over. Canada and the United States notably are in that category. But not surprisingly, lower income countries with weaker healthcare systems are left in the dust. If the present course continues, some of these countries may have to wait until 2022 or later before supplies are widely available. Duke University's Global Health Innovation Center estimates that there will not be enough vaccines to cover the world's population until at least 2023. According to Bloomberg, Guinea is the only country, only low-income country to date to have delivered any shots so far. And that was last week when Guinea provided doses of the vaccine to 25 people. Now, Heather Wickley, I know there are international provisions to try to ensure a relatively, at least equitable distribution of vaccines in cases of global pandemics through the World Health Organization. What exactly governs those provisions? And I'll ask you the follow-up. The U.S. has rejoined or announced rejoining the World Health Organization. What impact is that going to have on the effectiveness of the WHO? Yeah, well, in fact, they're really aren't really strong international governance mechanisms to ensure that there is um, sufficient vaccine manufacturing 
and um, provision in the case of the pandemic. And so with the advent of the COVID pandemic, the World Health Organization has launched a number of initiatives to try to um, generate both funding and um, manufacturing and delivery of these essential vaccines and therapeutics to treat COVID. One of those initiatives is called COVAX. It's uh, and it's initiative largely run through the um, Gavi Alliance, which is this global alliance for vaccines that um, provides kind of the essential vaccines to the least um, developed countries, the lowest income countries around the world. And so um, excitingly in the last 24 hours, not only did the United States uh, rejoin the WHO, but it also joined the COVAX initiative, um, which has been really struggling to generate the type of investment that it really needs in order to ensure that it can deliver the numbers of vaccinations that are required. I mean, the numbers here are just mind boggling, right? We have to vaccinate every, practically every individual on the planet. So we're talking upwards of 8 billion vaccines that need to be administered in a relatively quick period of time. So obviously there are bottlenecks, but we have to ensure it's a moral imperative and a human rights imperative that we don't just go with the richest um, first and that we have access to those vulnerable populations that are most at risk once they get the virus and have the least um, resources to be able to treat it. And so that's kind of the goal of COVAX and they've made a number of initiatives, a number of agreements so far to try to um, secure those vaccines that they're going to, they say, start delivering within the next month. Um, but the, the rubber hasn't hit the road yet, right? There, there's so many, there's so much secrecy right now around these various agreements that have been made between countries and manufacturers. So, and the, and the funds haven't actually been delivered yet. So it's not entirely clear at this point what the timeline and what the numbers are for that initiative in particular to try to get vaccines into those least um, developed countries. Now, thus far, we've been talking mostly about um, what nations might have access to vaccines, the concern with vaccine nationalism, countries developing the vaccines, wanting to make sure that, uh, that their populations are vaccinated first before the vaccines go, go elsewhere. Joanne Lynn, is, is that the primary concern um, at this point, kind of a vaccine nationalism, or how much should we be concerned about marginalized populations, even within the countries that do have access to the vaccine, and also the possibility of, uh, of it being a question of cost, that uh, populations that can afford to pay for the vaccine can get the vaccine, or is the expectation the vaccine is going to be distributed uh, free of charge? Uh, there are a lot of great questions in there, so I will try to unpack them as best I can, Doug. Um, you know, as Heather mentioned, you, uh, you know, uh, there are some 8.49 billion doses that have already been set aside. And that number would be sufficient to cover more than half the world's population if the shots were distributed evenly. But what we're seeing is anything but even an equitable distribution. So is it a question of vaccine nationalism? Certainly that was the case under our prior president, and he made that very clear. He, a, a former President Trump had issued an executive order on December 8th that was about America first and ultimately America only to the extent of prioritizing vaccine distribution for all Americans before anyone else in the world. We know that that would not be effective in terms of protecting the health of even Americans, and it certainly is problematic from a, a human rights perspective. 
the head of the World Health Organization this past Monday delivered some very stern words for the entire international community and said that the world is on the brink of a catastrophic catastrophic moral failure and the price of this failure will be paid with lives and livelihoods in the world's poorest countries. Um, he said it was wrong to see people at low risk in wealthy countries being vaccinated while most of the world still not did not have access to vaccines. It is not right that younger, healthier adults in rich countries are vaccinated before health workers and older people in poorer countries. It's precisely at a moment like this right now when an international human rights framework can actually take life and be meaningful to ensure that we can meet the, this moment where the pandemic is hitting every corner of the world, knowing that ultimately the world through respective governments and multiple pharmaceutical companies and many vaccines underway can ultimately deliver a vaccine to all of those people, especially those at highest risk first. But if vaccine nationalism predominates, if wealth drives the course here, what we're going to see is basically what we've seen in 2020, which has been a mad scrum and um, uh, um, trends that all are, are all trending terribly, whether it's the rise in cases or the rise in deaths and the world still not being able to get a tackle on this epi uh, pandemic. Yes, Heather Whiffley, like to respond as well. I just really want to emphasize what Joanne was saying, that it's not just about um, vaccine nationalism, but it's also about wealth. And I think we can't um, let the pharmaceutical industry off the hook in, in this case. And that is in the fact that they are still going for profits on these vaccines, even under the COVAX um, negotiations, they're charging around $20 per person um, for vaccination, which is well above the price that's going to be affordable to get the world vaccinated. And so um, Moderna in just in the past month has uh, decided to provide zero vaccine to South Africa. Um, and the others are kind of joining on that, that, you know, truck as well. And so there's there's really an issue on the part of the vaccine manufacturing and provision, not just at the national level, but at a pharmaceutical level, whether they're either going to provide them at an affordable cost. And there really is a lack of transparency around what these manufacturing costs are and how much would be an ethical price at which we should be charged in order to get access to them. And you know, another, speaking of human rights, you know. International human rights recognizes that intellectual property is a human construct that can and should be waived in the in the presence of a, a health emergency. And, and there have been um, requests to the World Trade Organization by low-income countries asking for a waiver for intellectual property regarding COVID vaccine technology and therapeutic technology. And so far, um, the United States, the EU, the UK, Japan, Australia, Switzerland, Norway, Canada, they're all opposing um, and blocking this waiver and protecting the intellectual property rights of these um, vaccine manufacturers even when most of that research and most of that science was supported and provided through taxpayer money. So there's a number of moral failures there when it comes to this strive for, for wealth over the, the health and safety of the global population. 
I'm really glad that Heather mentioned the intellectual property issue because just earlier today, Amnesty International sent a letter to the National Security Council in the Biden White House raising this particular intellectual property issue. Because although yesterday the president announced that the US will remain in the World Health Organization and will join and support COVAX, on the issue of these intellectual property rights, Heather's absolutely right that the US is on the wrong side, along with Canada and the UK, in opposing an intellectual property waiver. While at the same time, these are the same countries that are buying up and reserving enough vaccines to inoculate their populations at least four times over. So importantly, it's countries like India and South Africa that are leading the push at the at WHO to waive these intellectual property rights for COVID-19 vaccines and treatments. And the activists strongly believe that a waiver of these intellectual property rights would significantly increase supplies, both by allowing any qualified manufacturer to produce the supplies without fear of being sued or prosecuted. You're listening to Scholar's Circle. I'm Doug Becker, and we're discussing the human rights concerns and considerations for vaccine distribution globally. So, um, Heather Woodley, so far we've been talking mostly about the health provisions. Healthcare is an aspect of human rights, the individual's rights, you know, to uh, you know, to vaccinations, to healthcare treatment, et cetera. We've made these references to other human rights I'd really like to explore in greater detail. The first is the economic impact, in particular for populations that cross borders for business, you know, uh, cross borders for employment, and then also uh, populations such as asylum seekers or refugee populations that certainly can be left out of, of a vaccine distribution, or at least at the sort of at the bottom of that list. How salient are those two areas of, of human rights when we think about what's the right way to distribute the vaccine? Well, you're absolutely right in pointing out that the human rights implications of the COVID pandemic have reached far beyond health. They touch on all types of social and political um, rights as well. They've both been, um, they've been hurt and governments have also taken advantage of the crisis to further, um, you know, constrain some rights related to socioeconomic um, rights and political rights. So we do have to, you know, having that framework is important, looking at the broad spectrum of the negative impacts that COVID has had on individuals. Um, and then, and there's also a number of, of civil rights, which is a whole different issue, but getting at, you know, who has the right to deny whether or not they want to take the vaccine um, and, you know, how much, um, pressure our, our individuals under to um, adhere to the vaccine drive. So I, I think that, you know, that's a, that's a huge issue. And certainly in this case, all of those rights um, are important. And it's why taking a human rights framework is so important when considering the, the overall implications of the pandemic. Uh, please go ahead. I was just going to continue in terms of what Heather was talking about with, with respect to refugees and displaced peoples because there's some immediate steps that the Biden administration can undertake to ensure that asylum seekers um, waiting um, uh, in Northern Mexico uh, for humanitarian protection in the United States, there's some critical steps that the Biden administration can and must take. And so first, um, the Biden administration needs to rescind uh, this baseless March 2020 CDC order 
This was imposed at the onset of the um, uh, pandemic, even though it was not supported by science. And the CDC's top scientists um, found that there was no scientific basis, but former Vice President Pence instructed uh, then CDC Director Green, um, Redfield to uh, issue a directive which would basically uh, invoke the CDC's emergency powers to seal the US borders, overriding, overruling the CDC scientists who found there was no evidence that, the, um, cl that closing the borders would slow the spread of COVID-19. So even though the Biden administration has issued a panoply of most important and welcome um, immigration and asylum orders, uh, this March 20 CDC order is still in place and it's not supported by science um, and it's, it needs to be revoked immediately. In addition, the United States needs to ensure that um, in addition to the vaccine distribution, that governments are proactively including refugees, migrants, and displaced people in vaccination plans. And so the US should provide support to host countries that, it, that um, host millions of refugees. These are countries like Uganda, Bangladesh, Turkey, Lebanon, Jordan, that host millions of refugees. And um, the US should press those countries to enroll refugees in the, the national health insurance schemes the U.S. should work with the international community to ensure that all displaced people have timely and accurate information in healthcare. Um, and they should also um, ensure that NGOs and support programs are able to address increased levels of gender-based violence, which have been documented to be on the rise um, across the world during this year of COVID uh, lockdowns. So there are many different things that the United States can and should do in terms of leading the international community's um, response to COVID. It's not just limited to vaccine distribution. I guess one of the lessons, Heather Whitfield, that we've taken from this is there's certainly been a history of the use of pandemics and other and, and health threats as a justification for other human rights implications. Uh, lack of ability to travel, for example. I think of the, uh, the way in which SARS was, was framed in a way to try to cut off travel and certainly Ebola outbreaks recently as a way to try to regulate, if not completely limit travel. And the suspicion that COVID was a wonderful excuse to, you know, to close the border and start talking about you know, building more sections of the wall. Is that accurate? The use of, of pandemics as a justification for a lack of concern for a whole lot of other human rights well, there's no, no question that over the past year, governments around the world have taken advantage of the um, pandemic to um, further marginalize vulnerable populations and to violate um, human rights amongst populations um, at risk. But that doesn't have to be the case. And, and just, you know, just to think about some of the, the frameworks around human rights that can be used to ensure that that's not the case. Um, one is that, um, you know, we really want to have these, these decisions and these limitations that are put in place and be science-based. And that's one of the great, you know, things about the past 24 hours in the United States has been this return back to science and evidence as a, as a platform for making these decisions. And really, you know, having to have that scientific justification 
for the policies that are being undertaken. And also that they're time limited and they have a real specific horizon for their expiration. And so that we see that this is a crisis that has to be dealt based on the evidence and that we will then move beyond that. And so we have a clear idea for why these limitations are being placed either on our movement or on our behaviors. Um, and those are, those are critical both to not only to protect our human rights, but also from a public health perspective, because if populations begin to lose faith and lose trust in the public health decisions being made, and they start to see them more as human rights violations or mechanisms of control, then they start rebelling against them and they're no longer you know, going to be following them and we see the, their effectiveness start to erode. And, and so on both sides, either from the human rights perspective and the public health perspective, it's really important that all these political decisions, these policies decisions be time limited, evidence-based, and um, you know, in line with other human rights uh, frameworks. I think that's a, a wonderful place, a wonderful conclusion, you know, to end. And ultimately, the importance of thinking of vaccine distribution, both from the public health perspective, as well as from the human rights perspective, it's really not an either or, but it's very much a kind of hand in glove approach. These considerations need to be in connection with one another. We've been discussing the human rights and public health considerations on vaccine distribution with Joanne Lin, who is the National Director of Amnesty International USA's Advocacy and Government Affairs Division, and Heather Whipley, Associate Professor of Clinical Preventive Medicine and International Relations at the University of Southern California. Thank you both very much. Thank you, Doug. Thank you. Thank you to our guests and to you for listening. The Scholars Circle team includes Doug Becker and Lillian Inc., contributing hosts, Ankine Agassian and Melissa Chiprin, managing producers, Sud Dongre, our webmaster, Tim Page and Mike Hurst, engineers and technical support. I'm Maria Armudian, and we'll see you next week.